Well, it's my privilege to welcome each of you and add my welcome to that of David's. And good to be able to greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and to be in his house on his day together with his people. And indeed, we are blessed. I want to mention this uh, table full of boxes that are in front of us today. There are, as I understand, 106 of them. And these are the shoe boxes that uh, will be sent around the world through Samaritan's Purse. Uh, Operation Christmas Child is what it has been called. And I looked it up. This has been going on since 1993, uh, much longer than I had thought. I guess uh, some things like this, just they, they seem to repeat every year and become a fixture. But really, uh, just to think of the, the technology involved to do what they're able to do, uh, back then, that was kind of new. These days, we live in a, an, an Amazon world where if you want something, in the next day or two, you pull out your phone, you hit the uh, order button, and then they'll track the thing to your house, and you'll know when it's going to arrive. These uh, you can actually track as well. But to think that you could buy a box put some things in it, and send it to a child along with a copy of the gospel in their language um, is an amazing thing we praise the Lord for. Now, this isn't all of them. Um, there's a whole gym full of tables spread out everywhere with items almost as if you'd sort them out in a store. And our middle schoolers this afternoon will hold their packing party, and they get to go through and choose what they want and fill up many, many more boxes. And uh, this is collection week, so they'll go to the distribution center, and then they'll be on their way. But um, for our opening prayer, I think it's fitting that we pray for those involved in this venture, but also that the Word of God that goes with it will receive its witness. The Holy Spirit will do His wondrous work of changing hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for the opportunity to gather in your house on another Sunday. And we, we thank you that that can take place not just in this room, but in our homes. And Lord, we ask that you put our mind where it needs to be and focus it on what we need to focus on. That is your word for these next few minutes to do the work of change in our lives such that we can be useful to you in your kingdom. Lord, one way we've, we've been able to do something that years ago perhaps was not possible, we ask that you bless something as simple as a, a shoebox put together by children or families and enclosed in that box the timeless words of truth that we'll study today. But Lord, we ask that you'll bless your word. That would be praying in your name. You've already promised to bless your word. You've already promised to build your church and to gather people from all nations and all tongues and all tribes. Lord, we just ask that you be pleased to do that through this effort, the efforts of others and other churches. And Lord, in so doing, would, would you bless those that are involved? And give them a sense of, of participation and, and accomplishment and a hunger to do more. 
Lord, equip us, encourage us. And Lord, in, in, in your means and measure, bless us as well. We ask all this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of John. And uh, again, whether you're at home or in this room, it's always good to hear the sound of Bible pages turning. And the reason we do that is to make sure that we're reading God's Word and never taking another man's word for it that God said it. We want to look at this with our own eyes, with our own Bibles. And uh, we're going to close out the 16th chapter of John. And I'll read uh, beginning in verse 25 down through verse 33. And then we'll pray again, as is our custom and ask the Lord to help us understand and obey what we're reading. This is John sixteen twenty-five. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you. Because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe what you came from God, or that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is God's word, let's pray. Father in heaven. Once again, do what you've promised to do and unfold these things to us in our understanding. Bless our resolve to be obedient to them. And may your kingdom be furthered and your glory be made known. ask this in your name. Amen. Well, up until now, and we've we've been talking about this because John's been repetitive in what he's been telling us that... The hour's drawing closer. And until now, uh, and, and what Jesus is bringing up here in verse 25, when Jesus has spoken about his death, he's done so in, in veiled language. In other words, he's not come right out and, and said, I will die on this date by this method by the, the hands of these people. He's not been that specific. What he has said It's hard for us to hear it like the disciples would have heard it without any knowledge that we have of the rest of the story. We talked about that too. And we've got to be careful there. But it's not so veiled to us because we've read to the end. But it was very veiled to them. So again, we've got to be good students and and ask ourselves the question, what does this mean to the disciples as much as what does this mean to us? And really, a great deal hangs on the meaning of the words translated in your your Bibles there in verse 25. Uh, 
translated figures of speech. Uh, that's the ESV version. If you've got the King James, it might even say in, in parables um, or proverbs rather, depending on your translation. Uh, it can mean parables. It can mean proverbs, the, the word that's actually there in the Greek. Um, but it's also used of a number of clever sayings of one sort or another. We use figures of speech, don't we? Uh, it, it, it would be a very wooden and bland and sterile conversation if we never used figures of speech. That we were always very precise and particular in every word that we place. Sometimes I have fun with my children in answering their questions as literal as possible. It aggravates them, but um, sometimes I'll be asked, you know, this is on the phone, where are you? I'm, I'm in my truck. Okay, where are you in your truck? In the front seat. <laughs> and this is a game that, that we'll play. Um, usually it's nowhere near as fun for them as it is for me. But when we use figures of speech, usually we're making it easier on the person or helping them understand something that the figure of speech might help unfold it. But in this case, it's the opposite of that. Jesus is using veiled language for the purpose of concealing the whole thing to them. And maybe not so much concealing it, but, but making sure that not all of the cat is out of the bag. That's figure speech, right? So, though it can be used in a number of ways, translated a number of ways in different places, the implication is that the meaning does not lie on the surface, but must be searched out. And the disciples have not been able to search this out yet. It's still somewhat a mystery to them. And it's not just a matter of unpacking this figure of speech. Like Jesus has given them all the clues. And if they'll be very good students, that they can connect the dots and arrive and get extra credit on the quiz. That's not what's going on either. He's not yet given it all to them. Uh, they're not dim-witted. They're not lazy. They, they're just on the other side of the cross than we are. And none of the gospel writers, if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, suggest at all that any of the disciples had this clearly before the resurrection. It was always after the resurrection. It didn't even make sense after the death and burial. Only after the resurrection. And I think the key here... To understand why it would come up again in verse 25. Hey, I've been talking in figures of speech. There's coming a time where I'll speak to you plainly and all this will make sense. If you remember in verse 12 where he said, I still have many things to say to you. He's not telling them those things. He then says, you cannot bear them now. So on purpose, he's keeping some things reserved for them. Um, I, I, I searched for ways to to illustrate this, to try to grasp what I think is going on or explain it from all the commentaries that I've read and, and it can get rather stale trying to read through so many. But I remember a, a story 
And this, I, I actually remember my wife telling me when she heard it from a book by Corey Ten Boom. I know some of you are familiar with her. Uh, those of you of Transworld Radio, I know you are. Uh, but in one of her books, she tells this story about a train ride with her father. And on the train ride, she overhears a conversation from some adults. She doesn't know what they're talking about and asks her father, what does this mean? And she tells in the story how he looked at her like he usually would, but he paused and did not answer her question. But at the end of the ride, he asks her to pick up his bag, which is full of watches and tools. That was their business. It's very heavy. And being an obedient little girl, she tried to pick it up, but she couldn't pick it up. And he said, that's too heavy for you, isn't it? I can't pick it up. I know you can't. And I would not be a good father if I expected you to. So for now, I'm going to have to carry it. And you're going to have to trust me with that question you asked a while ago. That too is too heavy for you right now. I think that fits here. With the disciples, this stuff was too heavy for them to carry at the moment. Just a few hours later, they're going to grow up a lot. And they'll be ready for it. But not until. And we're glad that Jesus knows best. Uh, We think we'd like to know everything. uh, But it wouldn't work well. So the last time Jesus had predicted his death, as it were, was back in chapter 12. And although that seems like forever ago, it was really only a few days for the disciples as far as the narrative is concerned. And he had said, the hour is come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's that veiled language. These disciples, we look at that and say, oh, he's talking about his death, where he's going to be buried in the ground and bear much fruit spiritually. The disciples would not understand that. So Jesus mentions here in verse 25... Another hour, not the same hour as in chapter 12, but a future hour, one that's still to come. They're right up on the hour where he's going to die, but they're still a ways off from the hour where he's going to speak plainly to them. That makes sense? We're all on the same page? And one might think at this point, you know, with his death right around the corner, that this should be the time where the riddles are done. Go ahead and level with them. Uh, they're going to have a tough time. But Jesus seems to insist, even though you got other groups of people like the, the, the Jews who actually said, how long will you keep us in suspense? Just tell us plainly. Well, he's still holding on. Even though the disciples in verse 29, we just read that, think that he's speaking plainly. And in that place, he actually is. They're jumping the gun. They're ahead of him. But much of what's going to be unfolded to them will happen after the resurrection. And Jesus seems clearly to be looking forward to that time. And it'll help us to remember that in Acts, those disciples don't even resemble these disciples. The transformation will take them from weaklings to heroes, really. So look at verse 26. In that day you will ask in my name. The day that he's referring to is the hour where uh, he'll no longer need to speak in mysterious language. But look at this. If you like to circle or make notes. In that day, you will ask in my name. 
And I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So that's another thing that will happen after the resurrection when he's speaking plainly to them. He'll go from asking the Father for them to them asking the Father for themselves. That's a, a big transition. Let's hear him out. Verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. Verse 28, he summarizes basically his whole ministry. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. So when the time comes for plain speech, the riddles are over, Jesus will not need to intercede for his disciples like he's going to do in the next chapter. If you've, you've probably got your Bibles open where you, you may be able to see chapter 17. If you have a red letter edition, that, that whole thing's red. It's, it's one long prayer of Jesus. And about midway through, we'll see where he starts to pray for his disciples, those that the Lord has given to him. And we've already studied this. If, if the Father gives someone to his Son, that means they're saved and they'll never be lost, right? Um, so he's saying, there's going to come a time where I won't pray like this, like this, for you anymore because you'll have a privilege you don't now have. You can pray to the Father yourself. By virtue of what's going to happen during that little while that I can't tell you about yet. It's going to be very hard for you, but after it's over, it'll all make sense. So if you want to ask the question, well, why doesn't he need to intercede for them anymore? The answer is there's not going to be any need to. Why is Jesus dying on the cross? To pay for their sins. What's the big deal with sins? Oh, they separate you from God. Well, if the sins are forgiven, then there's no more separation between you and God. You have access to him yourself. So what Jesus is here to do is to restore the relationships that fell apart in the Garden of Eden. And once that's done, then they've got a free line of communication to pray for themselves. That's what he's saying. Uh, he will have restored the relationship between these men and the Father. Right now, he's their go-between where they go to him and he goes to the Father. After the resurrection, they will ask in his name. That's something that's not unfamiliar to the way we, we do things. Um, if you think of it in terms of access to certain people or places, uh, not everybody has the same access to certain places or where they'd want to go. Uh, some people do. And you probably learned not long after... Uh, you started understanding things that it kind of helps to know certain people if you want access to what they have access to, right? It's not, some people say it's not who you know, but what you know. Well, sometimes it's, it's who you know. Um, practically all the jobs I had since I started working, I got because of my last name, because they knew my father. Um, well, the job at Hills Department Store cleaning bathrooms over Christmas season. I got that on my own name. And I think anybody else could have too if they'll just show up on time. And uh, that it was a seasonal job where, you know, supply is short. Um, but most of those I, I got because I knew, they knew my father. 
Uh, one time, my wife and I were able to tour the nation's capital. Some of y'all have done that. If, if you call your congressional office, they're usually very good about setting up a tour for you to do that. And we were in D.C. and uh, took a tour. Our congressman from 5th District actually took us on the tour himself. And uh, there were certain things on that tour other people don't usually see. Got to go inside the room where the State of the Union happens. Got to go under the, the, in the tunnels on the uh, congressional golf carts is what they kind of look like. That had everything to do with my congressman, not <laughs> with me or my wife. That's how that worked. I'm, I'm kind of with him. And what this is saying, praying in Jesus' name, is a way of saying, I have access to the throne of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on my account. That's how that works. To pray, that's actually to communicate with God. In Jesus' name is to say, it's on His name. The gospel is in Jesus' name. Your salvation is in Jesus' name. Your sanctification is in Jesus' name. Your prayer is in Jesus' name. It's all because of Jesus. So I don't know who I would need to know to meet the president. But if you want to know God, you need to know His Son. That's how you do that. Uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. That's what this is also saying. All right. Um, here Jesus summarizes his whole mission as well. After he gets through that line, he explains that he came from the Father, came into the world, is leaving the world and going back to the Father. So he's summarizing his whole mission, the mission of which these men were to bear witness, uh, the mission by which the Spirit would bear witness. We've covered that so far. And this is the mission that the world will have access to the gospel through the dual witness of the Spirit and the church, uh, which is, is a repetition of what we've already come to know. But what it seems to do when you get to verse 29 is turn the light bulb on for these disciples. They go, oh, okay, now you're speaking in plain speech. And maybe it was because Jesus put it so succinctly um, it doesn't, it's not a surprise to us that Jesus didn't come to earth to stay here. But I think the disciples thought he did. They were looking at this as a one-way ticket. We understand it as a round trip. Where he'll come again. There's another leg to the, the trip that's still future. But verse 29, his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. There's an exclamation point there. And basically two things of, of significance are said by them, if you want to mark these. Verse 30, they say, now we know. And then further down, it says, this is why we believe. So now we know, and based on what we know, this is why we believe. That's significant. What do they know? That he knows all things. And does not need anyone to question him. And this is why we believe that you've come from God. So it's as if all at once 
They felt the need to put themselves unconditionally behind Jesus and seek to dismiss the notion that he can no longer count on them. Uh, this, is, this is tough. Even in a setting where we're all Christians and we gather here on a Sunday morning and we dress up to do so and we get out our Bibles in our laps and we're on purpose studying, we pray to ask the Lord to clear our heads and help us understand. All of this stuff we've been studying for weeks happened really in one night. And to try to gauge if there was such a thing as a thermometer on, on the dramatic and the emotion of discussing what's around the corner, which will involve Christ's death and, and their having no access to him, and reading exclamation points like this, how are we supposed to hear in their voices? Are they really excited about this? And then if they're really excited about this, when Jesus turns right around and says, Really? Because you're going to be, you're going to be gone. You're, you're going to leave me alone in, in, in just hours. I wish I really knew how it would ebb and flow as far as the emotion of it. But we can't. We just read the words and we can use our imaginations. God gave us those too. But it seems they were pleased with themselves. They listened and understood something of this new arrangement where Jesus is who prays for us now, but there's coming a time where we'll pray for ourselves. But they had no idea that that knowledge was a shallow confidence. How many times uh, in our lives do we ever find ourselves having come to the realization that the confidence we thought we had really didn't amount to much and now it, it, uh, it's not really cool to be us at the moment. You know, not necessarily pride goes before a fall, but just I've got this, I've figured it all out and you find out I haven't even begun to learn just yet. Uh, we could talk all kinds of examples here like when we got married and then a week down the road. Uh, where, wow, we thought we had this fixed, or a month down the road, or 50 years down the road, we're still learning. The human species has the crazy capacity to think they've got everything figured out. Jesus knows better than this. And the same thing is going on in the last paragraph, it's just going to be impossible to get all this together before the cross, death, and resurrection take place. Um, actually, this is not new. Um, I'll get to that in a minute. Look at verse 31. We'll read a little bit further. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Question mark. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come. You will be scattered, each to his own home. You'll leave me alone. I'm not alone completely, for the Father's with me. I've said these things, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart, I've overcome the world. That, that's the end of chapter 16. Do you now believe? You think I'm speaking plainly. You've got it all under control. Do you think you believe? Is basically the same thing that happens in chapter 13. When uh, Peter says, I'll go to death with you, right? Peter objects quite strongly. Jesus responds, will you lay down your life? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow 
till you've denied me three times. So I think if we're trying to track with the with the dramatic here, there's a there's a height. Ah, we've got it now. And then there's a valley. And that's here. Basically, Jesus is saying, you've now arrived. Huh? And then as if to say, you haven't even been through what it's like to fall yet. How can you be an expert if you haven't had a wreck? How, how can you pass the test if you haven't studied? Uh, if, if you're going to get the gold medal for uh, the pole vault, you're going to need to fall a lot of times before that happens. They haven't even made the mistake yet, but they think they've got what they need. And as a good teacher, he's making sure they know what's happening. These men will run. Jesus will be alone. So Jesus does not openly accept their confession of faith. Instead, he confronts them with the reality of what's just around the corner. And that is that their faith will be severely tested. Which will amount to strength, but not without pain. Uh, Michael Card, one of his uh, books is what I read to study for these things. It's different than all the other commentaries that I have. He's a recording artist, uh, but, but a very good author as well. He says, verse 33, is the final statement of this long discourse, and it is the perfect conclusion, not simply of all that he has said for the last four chapters, but of all that he has said to them over the past three years. So what does he say in verse 33? Well, look at it again. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now this is where it, it might be very helpful to make some notes. If you don't mind marking your Bibles. Um, I'm, I'm a proponent of marking your Bibles. How does it, how does it go? If you mark your Bible, it will mark you. Um, but look at this. There's three contrasts in that verse. First of all, in me is set over against in the world. Those are two totally different things. You couldn't have more of a contrast. And then the second contrast is you may have is set over against you will have. And uh, everybody's ever had their mother give them the lecture between the difference of uh, will and may or can and may. Those are different. And then the third contrast is peace over against tribulation. Those are opposites. Peace is not tribulation. Tribulation is not peace. And if you pull all those together uh, in, in a succinct, succinct sentence, it might sound like this. All must live in the world and will have tribulation. None of us have the option of living someplace other than this planet. And Jesus has said that anyone in this world will have tribulation. So we're stuck with that. But they may live in Christ. And living in Christ comes with peace. So there is a clear offer of the gospel there. However grave the temporary defection of his disciples, Jesus looks beyond their failure to their restoration and ends the chapter with encouragement. 
Praise the Lord for the last verse in chapter 16. It's a rough chapter. And it's going to get rougher still. But just like we studied with, with, with Peter, his denial does not preempt his following Jesus later in the book of Acts. Jesus did not overlook the trial that would affect these men as well as himself, all of which was inevitable in a world that was estranged from God. We shouldn't be... This is something that, that Christians just should, should learn every day if necessary. We're wrong if we think that, that somehow, as Christians, we get a pass for the trouble in this world. It's not like that. Uh, it makes sense that in a world estranged from God, under the curse of sin and rebellious to Him, that it's going to be rough. But, He did proclaim victory over it. There at the end. In Him they will have peace. If you've been on an Israel trip, you've heard the word shalom a lot. Maybe on the bus you were taught what it means, and you used it for the rest of the trip. But that's what that means, peace. The world will offer nothing but pain and disappointment. And in his final words, before he turns to the Father in prayer in verse, or chapter 17, he speaks these words to his eleven. Basically, be courageous. I have conquered the world. It's going to get rough. But it's temporary. Um, I was talking to someone the other day about uh, different ways one might try to interpret the eschatological material in the Bible. Revelation. And uh, how that there's so much confusion as to what all that means. But the, the point of it all is this. It won't last forever. He's coming back because he's had victory over all those things. Uh, my father, and some, some of you likely know this. Um, I don't... It's always tough for a guy who uses certain stories from his family for illustrations because it's possible that a guy who does this can forget those and tell them over and over again. If you know this already, uh, my apologies. But he had a heart attack in... Well, it was about 12 years ago. And it was a, it was a bad one. And I, I wouldn't know till the next morning when my mother would call me and got ready for work but went to the hospital instead... And he was being transferred to catheterization and the doctor came out and had his clipboard with a picture on it and explained to me on a, this picture of a heart that this is bad. Uh, even though your, your daddy has run his legs off for many of his years, great health, but this is, this is what his heart looks like. And uh, stents wouldn't work because it was in curves on the bottom no damage to the heart, but it was going to require bypass. So he was transferred to Duke, and uh, six-way bypass was the result. Eleven hours or so worth of a procedure. But before they wheeled him back, and a lot of you know how this works. You've got a little place, and there's little curtains and lots of beds, and this is where you wait till they come get you. You've got the thing on your head and the thing in your arm and covers up to here. And you just wait until it's time to say goodbye to your family who will go wait in a waiting room. And as we're getting ready to 
wave and head down the hall, my daddy looks at me and my mother and says, if anybody comes out to that room where you're going to be and tells you that I'm dead, don't believe them for a minute. At that point, I will be more alive than I've ever been. And, of course, we expect stuff like that out of pop. And uh, it's encouraging, but it's hard to hear at the same time, isn't it? Because you realize how fragile you are and that humans are not bulletproof on this planet. But when all that's over, and that little bit has passed, and these bodies wear out and they're, they're gone... He has overcome the world. We're with Him forever. That's the whole reason for what He said. I was in heaven with the Father. I left the Father and came down here to earth. I did what was necessary so that you could have access to the Father. And then I'm going to leave this world and go back to the Father. Round trip to signify that it's a done deal. So even if it looks rough and it hurts bad... Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Those are wondrous words. And in conclusion, just to maybe bring out a piece or two and then wrap this up, land the plane. Could it be that we think we know Jesus too well? These disciples certainly did. I think every one of us has. Maybe is. I I, I think we're prone to this type of thing. We expect a lot. We expect smooth sailing. And for the most part, that's exactly what the Lord has given us. And we've got modern medicine, and we've got a stable economy, and a stable government compared with others or other generations. We've got it good. But we do have to say goodbye sometimes before we wanted to. Things don't turn out the way they're supposed to. All the plans get all messed up because of pandemics and and other things. Maybe it's time, knowing that we're on the other side of the cross, to take those things to, to God the Father in the name of the Son and make sure spiritually we're not too big for our britches. It only makes the wait longer and the usefulness less. You could put that another way by saying, what are the limitations of your faith? Jesus spoke clearly of the limitations of his disciples' faith here. Um, Untested faith. Has your faith been tested? The strongest faith is the beat-up faith. The folks that have been through it all, the ones I go to talk to when I'm going through something. Wear that faith with humility. Um... Sometimes that, that puffed up faith deflates the flattest when the test comes. Um, and then another thing is worth mentioning and should be of an encouragement to us. The church depends ultimately on what God has done in Christ, not on the courage and expertise of its first members, known as the disciples. Aren't you glad that the success of this venture didn't hang on whether or not they fell apart or not? And aren't you glad that those that will sit in these pews or somewhere else on this campus or another campus when we're all gone does not necessarily depend on 
our expertise or our smarts or our cleverness, but on what Jesus did on the cross and will never cease to bear witness to through the Spirit and those that are His own. You know how much agony and anguish I've gone through over the past few months figuring out what it is we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it, when we're supposed to do it, and how safe we're supposed to do it, just so the whole thing doesn't run in the ditch? It's good that there are verses like this that remind me of disciples who didn't run it in the ditch. It wasn't theirs to run into the ditch. They're just along for the ride. Riding along with a man who conquered the whole world. So yeah, Wake Chapel's looking up. Even if it looks down, um, we can't mess it up as long as we're faithful. As long as we'll do what we're supposed to do. And then let's not miss the gospel in this passage. Verse 27 puts it just as good as uh, verse 33. For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and I have believed and have believed that I came from God. This is what He says to, to kind of shore up the business of I don't need to pray for you anymore after that point. You can pray for yourselves, for the Father Himself loves you. Why does it make sense to tell these men that the God the Father loves you? Because for an entire Old Testament, anybody that saw Him drop dead, right? He's the most scary thing that the planet would know. Why? Because the planet's in opposition to Him. The relationship's broken. It's not right. But this says the Father loves you. And why would the Father love someone that He's cursed because of their sin? Because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. That's, there's that business about in Jesus' name. You love me, He loves you. That's how this works. Because of the work of Jesus, the disciples were able to approach the Father directly with their petitions. Because they had committed themselves to Jesus and had believed, the Father loved them. Because of the relationship Jesus had established with them, they had grounds for a direct relationship with the Father. Again, I don't know who you need to know or see to meet the President, but I do know who you need to know and see to meet God, and that is His Son. So their standing with God the Father depends on their relation to His Son, and that is based on His merits alone. So if this message concluded with a question, I think it would be, do you have standing before God? There's only one way to obtain that, and that is to have a relationship with His Son. Paid for on the cross and freely given to you by gift of the Spirit. Do you know this? Do you believe this? Is this stuff real? If it is, tell folks. It's amazing what Jesus tells his men at the depths of their despair. And next week, well, actually, the week after next, we have a communion service next week. But the week after, we'll focus our attention on what may be the final prayer in that specific way 
where it's necessary for the son to go to God on their behalf. That will change after it is finished. But that's for later. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the comfort of it. Lord, where would we be without you when those trials come? We feel as though we can insulate ourselves from it in spells or duration of time. But Lord, all of us come up against our, our humanity in pain and anguish and rejection and death. Lord, never let us forget if we have to preach it to ourselves every day. You have overcome the world. Left heaven, came to earth, finished your work, left earth, back into heaven. Lord, we thank you for these things. Seal them to our heart. And we thank you for being in your house with each other. We ask this in your name. Amen.